Last week, Tommy began the series about James, and uh, we're going to continue this series for the month of January. James is a short New Testament book which speaks to us about how to live out our faith. Um, it's very practical. Uh, the book of James, like many two New Testament books, was a letter. And one of these uh, things about letters is who was it written by? And uh, the consensus is that this letter was written by James, the half-brother of Jesus. And uh, James was a leader of the Jewish Christians in Jerusalem. Uh, one of the things that puzzled me was why didn't James just come out and say, hey, I'm the half-brother of Jesus, but he, he didn't. And I think the best explanation I read on that is because that really doesn't give him any authority to, uh, to say what he's saying. It's really that uh, he, he, can't, he doesn't play that card. He just simply says he's a servant of God and the Lord Jesus Christ. So the greeting of this book tells us who the letter was written to. <clears throat> and unlike many letters that comprise New Testament books, it wasn't written just to a particular church, but rather to a group, uh, the, 12 tribes and the 12 tribes and the dispersion, particularly the Jewish Christians. The dispersion is a technical name for all the nations outside of Palestine where Jewish people had come to live as a result of the persecution they were facing. Uh, the dispersion meant that the Jewish Christians were not living in Israel. They had to move because they were driven out. And because of this, they faced poverty, social conflict between the rich and the poor, and were subject to the demands of rich landowners. They underwent per persecution or suffering because of their faith. And further, there was spiritual conflict um, between factions of the church. Uh, many had heard about how to follow Jesus, had become followers of Jesus, uh, but they just weren't living their life in a way that appeared to be impacted by the life-transforming message and change that comes from making Jesus the main thing in your life. Again, the theme of the book is a charge to be a doer of, the doer of your faith and not just a hearer. Uh, the book has many similarities to an Old Testament book of wisdom, uh, in fact, there's, there's only 108 verses in the whole book, and 50 of them are imperatives, just telling us what to do. Um, James doesn't spend any time getting, setting you up for what he's going to do. He just starts telling us. So he tells us how we should live as Christians with the understanding that you should have already heard the doctrinal foundations. Uh, James is not a self-help book, but it's a book telling us how to walk as Christians within the context and doctrines embodied in the Bible when you take it as a whole. And through it all, through all this that the, the church had been through, the, the church had become worldly. They just weren't putting their faith in practice. So last week, Tommy talked about remaining steadfast and preached on James um, 1, 2 through 18. And this week, we'll be building on that, covering James um, 19 through 26. So I'm going to ask a couple questions. I don't don't want any show of hands, um, but are you a hearer of the word only, or are you a doer of God's word? And secondly, um, is is our religious worth? Are, is our religion? Is your religion worthless? Uh, today we're going to cover two main topics: what it means to be being a doer and not a hearer only of the word. Um, and secondly, what does is what is being a doer and obeying God mean in our relationships with each other as we listen, as we speak, and as we react to each other? 
So verse 22 starts with the premise of the passage today. James 1.22 says, Be doers of the word and not hearers only, deceiving yourself. Another way of saying this is how can we have integrity? How can we live the rest of the week like we, we do on Sunday morning? Or how can we practice what we preach? And then if following Christ doesn't change you, then what's going, what's going on in your heart? The overarching theme of James is that God wants to, our faith to change the way we live and act and speak. That our faith is not a verbal assent to making Jesus the Lord over our lives, but rather that this trust in Jesus should be something that takes root in our lives and changes us from the inside out. Let me read James 1, 23 and 24. If anyone is a hearer of the word and not a doer, he is like a man who looks intently at his natural face in a mirror. For he looks at himself and goes away and at once forget what he was like. Um, as, as we get started, maybe just a little backdrop. I haven't figured out all this stuff. Um, this is a very challenging book to me. And so anything said, said here is not from any spirit of judgment or that I figured it out um, because I haven't. Um, so a hearer is someone who just lets the word of God go on by, and it doesn't get internalized. It doesn't change the way we live. Really, a hearer is somebody who doesn't look any different to a non-Christian than another non-Christian. What a hearer is something like, uh, a hearer only, is some, something like somebody who wants to get fit or in shape. So they buy a lot of books, they get a men's and women's fitness magazines, they listen to podcasts, they even get a gym membership, but then they don't exercise. They miss the point. Uh, I saw Jake's name tag today. Uh, a hero could be like somebody who wants to, get a wants to snowboard. So they go get a snowboard. And again, they get the magazines and they read them. They get, a, they get a pass. They take video lessons. They never go to the slopes. Uh, those really seem pretty ridiculous, right? Um, but James is telling us that if we're like a hero of the word only, then we're not living as Christians. We're just like the people in the fitness and the snowboard examples. Another thing, the non-Christian world is looking at us to see if we've been changed by our faith. If we aren't any different, why would they even investigate following Jesus? And our actions actually can drive people away from Christianity. I have a sad story about a, a good friend. We shared a lot about our faith. He asked about Jesus. He tried to, kept thinking that everything he was doing was the same, even though it wasn't. But lots of good conversations. What, one of the things that attracted him to ongoing conversations was the fact that I didn't, I didn't judge him. I told him I couldn't judge him. God was the only one that uh, could judge him, not me. But the story goes a little longer than this. His opinion of Christians took a big nosedive um, when his wife left him for a born-again Christian. Uh, I don't know the circumstances of the other person, but uh, from the outside looking in, that born-again Christian wasn't acting a whole lot like one. So, so how can we be a doer of God's word? Um, um, how do we do that? And, and really, there's, there's three things. It, just, it says hum we humble ourselves, we remember God's word, and then we do it or we obey him. So before I start this, I just wanted to share a recent example of application. Um, recently, I changed jobs, and, and uh, 
unlike a lot of job changes, I didn't just change jobs. I actually, um, along with my business partner, took our business and merged it with another accounting firm, um, which pretty much means everything in my life in the work world turned upside down. Uh, for the better, but anyway. So the, one of the reactions I found on myself was to get anxious. Uh, and I needed to step aside from my pride in thinking that I could do everything myself. And I needed, needed to trust in God. And I needed to be humble. And then I needed to remember scripture and see what does God say about anxiety. And so there was one section of verses that came to mind um, from Philippians. Many of you may know it. It says, rejoice in the Lord always. I will say it again, rejoice. Let your reasonableness, reasonableness be known to everyone. The Lord is at hand. Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything by prayer and supplication. With thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. So there it was. I needed to obey God's word. I needed to rejoice. I needed to be thankful. I needed to pray. I needed to be reasonable. I needed to fully trust God. And when I did, God gave me the peace that he promised. Now, reading scripture isn't a magic formula. This is just what happens when we are able to fully trust God. So this is this humbling yourself, remembering God's word, and then doing God's word. It's really easy to say, but we're going to spend our lifetime doing it. Uh, James 1.21 tells us, a um, little more. It says, therefore, put away all filthiness and rampant wickedness and receive with meekness the implanted word which can save your souls. In other words, it means repent, be humble. Come to God asking him to help you live the way you should, asking forgiveness for the ways you've been living improperly, and repent or turn away from living in ways that displease him. The starting point to drawing closer to God is always humility. It's not thinking more about ourselves than we should, not thinking less of ourselves than we should, and thinking about God as the one who we must be humble before because God is everything and the only thing we really need. Now James 1.19 says be quick to listen. So when we're reading the scriptures, what does this mean? It's don't make, I'd say don't make God out to be who you want him to be. Come to God's word and listen to who God is. And don't look a God for a God of your own making. You can't save yourself, or you already would have. A God of your making will be no better than trying to save yourself. Look and listen for who God is, and don't filter out his word based on whether you like it or not, or whether you would agree with it or not. And then after we, as we're listening, God, James 1.25 tells us to remember God's word. It says, but the one who looks into the perfect law, the law of liberty, and perseveres, being no hearer, but forgets, but a doer who acts will be blessed in his doing. This, is, this contrasts quite sharply with looking into a mirror and forgetting. This is studying, meditating, having God's word as part of our life. It's really hard to serve God, to be a doer of God's word, unless we actually have God's word in the forefront in our life, to know it and to know it deeply. You know who did this well? Jesus. Look at how Jesus used the word constantly 
When Jesus was tempted, he used scripture to rebuff the evil one. When he argued with the religious leaders, he used scriptures to make his points, and on and on through the Gospels. In short, we can't be doers of the word, living as Christians, unless we actually know, in increasing measure, what the word says. Practically, this means having a regular time to read through the scriptures, and not just your favorite verse or book in the Bible over and over, but the whole thing, even the tough passages. It means sharing the word with your brothers and sisters in Christ. It means reading through long passages of scriptures, and then it means stopping to get curious about other passages of scriptures. And one thing that it means also is to memorize the scriptures. So they're internalized. Now, for some of you, I know this is hard. But I also know all of you memorize a lot of things. So some of them more easily than others. So for in the spirit of New Year's, here's a New Year's challenge that could change your life. I'd like to challenge everyone to memorize one verse per week. That doesn't seem too bad, does it? Um, but if you do this after a year, you're going to have 50 verses memorized. In 10 years, you'd have 500 verses memorized. And, and now it's easier than ever to do this with so many of the Bible memory apps that are on our phones. And why do we do this? Well, besides James just told us to, because, because when you're confronted with something, you're going to have God's word right there in you to guide you. God's word will become part of who you are, and it will become the implanted word in you. Finally, we're to obey God's word. And uh, so let's start with the beginning. First of all, you, you can't just obey God's word on your own. But if you're humble and you ask God's help and you listen to and know God's word, then you can obey out of the right spirit. And so as we approach this, what, what should our motivation be to obey God? Um, it could be to be a better Christian. It could be to be a better witness. It could be to enjoy the blessings God promises to those who obey. It could be that you think that God's system of um, religiosity will produce the best life for you. It could be that you want to look good to others or you want to be better than other people. And these motivations, not of all of which are right, won't allow you to endure and persevere in obeying God's word. Uh, years ago, I listened to uh, Tim Keller talk about obedience with a short story. If I could have found it, I would have read his story. It would have been better than this. But uh, the gist of it was this. Just imagine a relationship where you really love and respect the other person. Could be a friend, your spouse, your boyfriend, your girlfriend, perhaps your parents or kids or someone else. If you knew doing something would really annoy them, hurt them, or put distance between you, would you still do it? Like if you knew dropping food in the floor and then just leaving it there would really upset them, would you still drop food in the floor and leave it? If you knew that they loved beef and hated lamb, would you cook them a special lamb dinner? That's really what our obedience is like to God. It's, it's knowing what pleases him and, and showing him his, our love through our obedience. We show we trust him by obeying him, knowing that when we obey, we accomplish things in his way and his time. 
when we try to do things our own way in our disobedience, you know what we're really telling God is that uh, we really don't trust him and we really have the right answer. If we only could know that he has our best interest at heart at all the times, I think that's where we all get hung up. We don't, we don't think God wants the best for us. A personal story about obeying God that happened a while ago. But years ago, when I was around, I think, 28, I was asked and accepted the job of being treasurer at College Church. And almost immediately, I was confronted with my own disobedience and hypocrisy in my life because I wasn't obeying God in my giving. Now, I didn't know, how could I have integrity in this new role and not be tithing, not be trusting God to take care of me, not giving a little bit of what God gave back to him? So, like many of us in our especially younger years, we don't have any money, um, but Laurel and I together started to obey, and it was a struggle. Uh, it focused us on trusting God and not ourselves, and for financially for a time, things got worse. Um, there were years of negative savings. I'd made a great investment in real estate that was taking cash from us. That was a little sarcasm, and... Uh, we also had three new little kids. Well, new, the kids are always new, right? We had three little kids. We needed a bigger car, more space. Laurel was working less, you know, the whole thing. But God helped us be faithful in our giving. I don't say this out of pride or that I did it, but it was God's help. He helped us be faithful in our giving through those times. And our obedience in giving was just one way of saying we trusted God for everything and not just our own hard work or the fact that when we did the finances, we knew we didn't have enough money. And God, and there were never an immediate rain shower of cash, but God always sustained us. And I'm convinced that uh, we are better off in every regard by trusting God in this area of our life and not ourselves. And just to be clear, we still have to trust God, and it's, it's always an effort to continue to obey God because we want to do it ourselves. So this, we didn't master this. This is an ongoing struggle after many years, and it requires work. And one more thing, and this gets back to listening to God's word, you're always gonna have a reason you can't obey. Um, so if I just followed on that same example of parting with your resources and giving, if you don't have any money, then you can justify your lack of giving for financial reasons. And you'll probably find fault in what the church is doing in order to justify your lack of giving. But God doesn't have that excuse in his commands. His command is to give. And if you're making a lot of money, then guess what? You're going to look at how much your giving has to be and go, whoa, that's a lot of money. Why, I could, I could get a new car, give this vacation, or maybe uh, think about buying a second home, or you, you, know, you fill in the blank. And, uh, and then the same thing. You're going you're gonna to say, well, maybe you don't like how the money's getting spent by the person, by a charity or by the church, just, just justifying why God doesn't, you know, you don't have to give. But that's not the point. The point is, the starting point of all of our disobedience is not trusting that God has our best interest at heart. And the starting point of all our obedience is trusting that God has our best, best interest at heart. at this point, just challenge all of you to seek out God in areas you're not obeying and ask for help. 
I don't know what they are for each of you. The giving was, was meant to be a giving sermon, but it just came out as far as something I could share personally. But God, but God knows, you and God know what to do. And to help you in this area, um, be accountable to somebody. God made us to be in community. We all know the promises we make to ourselves, we, we break those pretty quickly, but when we make them to others, they're stronger. So I'm, I'm gonna switch gears and talk about a specific area of obedience. Um, because James is writing to a church where there's factions and presumably people are fighting and they're arguing. And when I looked at the passage, I was immediately drawn to this section where it starts with a, about listening and speaking and reacting or being angry. And we talked about how that relates to God's word, but this relates to how we relate, this, about how we interact with each other. So let me, let me read the first couple of verses again, James 1, 19 and 20. Know this, my beloved brothers, let every person be quick to hear, slow to speak, and slow to anger. For the anger of man does not produce the righteousness of God. Three things, listening, restraining our speech, being slow to anger. And let's start with listening. There's a lot of definitions about listening, but maybe for today we can go with something like this. Listening is completely hearing and understanding what someone says so that you're, when you're done with listening, the other person feels heard and understood. Sometimes it might be easier to talk about what listening isn't. It's not easy. It's not hearing so we can just formulate our answer. It's not listening so we can, it's, it's not just hearing so we can fit what we hear into our belief system without seeing the differences. Listening is not hearing just so we can fix something without ever understanding. Listening is not hearing so we can be thinking of how to change the other person's mind. Listening is not hearing so we can share a story about ourselves that's better than the other person's and we can top their story. And listening is not reacting. Proverbs uh, has a couple interesting, sobering passages about what happens when we don't listen. Proverbs 18.13 says, if one gives an answer before he hears, it is his folly and shame. And Proverbs 18.2 says a fool takes no pleasure in understanding, but only in expressing his opinion. Now, I hate to say this, but over the time I was preparing this, what I was gonna say, um, I wasn't a very good listener. And you might ask how I know that, and it's because Lorelei told me on more than one occasion that I wasn't even listening. So, listening well is easy to say and really hard to do. Listening is practical. Um, a good friend of ours, an adopted grandfather, really told us in one of his repertoire of sayings, and he was a, he was a brilliant consultant. He said, uh, I, I'll try it in his cadence, how can you solve a problem until you know what the problem is? And we could get our kids around in the room and they could all repi repeat that. But what great advice, how often we try to solve problems without knowing that. And listening builds relationships. Have you ever finished a conversation where you felt like somebody really listened to you? Did it feel good? 
Did you feel understood? Um, how much time do we really, uh, how much time do each of us really feel understood and accepted by others? I mean, doesn't a lot of our life really revolve around people accepting us? We work on a lot of things to have people accept us. We get the right clothes, get the right jobs, a car, a certain career, athletics, scholastic achievements, kids, where we live, our vacations. The list kind of goes on. We want people to think what we're doing is pretty cool to accept us. Well, th what happens when we actually listen well? Well, we actually pull back some of that veneer that we all put over all of our lives, and we start getting to know each other. And as we know and trust each other, we're going to be able to experience the true joy of actually being known for who we are. And when somebody understands us, then we can work through our disagreements because we know the other person has taken the time to understand us. And they don't wrap our identity in with a statement or issue they disagree with because the time was taken to understand it deeply. And this in turn builds unity into our relationships. It doesn't mean we're going to agree with each other. It means we're going to understand and respect where each other comes from. And it's this deep listening and understanding which is what we who believe in Jesus have found in our relationship with him. Jesus knows us more deeply than we can imagine. He knows everything bad about us, more than we even know about ourselves or admit. And he loves us so richly and deeply that he, he gave up his place in heaven and became man and allowed himself to come down and be killed by us so he could save us from ourselves and our separation from God. One more thing about listening, which would be easy to overlook, is listening is more than just while you're with somebody. Good listening is made complete by respecting the other person when they're not even around, when they're not present. By not sharing things that are sensitive, controversial, intimate, or would be taken out of context and betray the other person you listen, the person you listen to. To be consistent in your conversation with the person you are with and outside that conversation by being respectful in your conversations where you disagree with the other person's viewpoints. Proverbs 26 summarize, summarizes some of this in verses 20 through 22. I'll just read a couple of them. For, and remember, this was a church that had conflicts going on. So for lack of wood, the fire goes out, and where the, when there's no whisper, quarreling ceases. As charcoal is to hot embers and wood to fire, so is a quarrelsome man for kindling strife. And the words of a whisperer are like a delicious morsels. They go down into the inner parts of the body. Proverbs 11.13 says, Whoever goes about slandering reveals secrets, but he who is trustworthy in spirit keeps a thing covered. Listening's hard. Keeping quiet is hard. It's really hard but it's something we can't do on our own. It's only through God's strength we can do it. Excuse me. <clears throat> James goes on to say we should be slow to speak. So what does being slow to speak mean? James is calling for restraint in what we say. In fact, James caps at the end of this section of verses by saying in James 1.26, if anyone thinks he's religious and doesn't bridle his tongue, but deceives his heart, this person's religious is worthless. Anybody here want the religion to be worthless? Don't answer, don't, don't raise your hand. 
Uh, I looked for a few verses in Proverbs about how our speech would be, how it affects others, our relationships. There's a lot of verses on it. In fact, it, it's very highly nuanced and complex. In short, the Bible says a lot about how our, our speech, it says how it encourages and discourages, how it heals and destroys, how it incites conflict and brings peace, how it brings wisdom to a situation, how a few foolish words can destroy a situation. Here's just a couple of the Proverbs. We'd be here for a long time if I read them all. Um, a soft answer turns away wrath, but a harsh word stirs up anger. The tongue of the wise commends knowledge, but the mouths of fools pour out folly. To make an apt answer is joy to a man, and a word in season how good it is. The heart of the wise makes his speech judicious and adds persuasiveness to his lips. Gracious words are like a honeycomb, sweetness to the soul and health to the body. A fool's mouth is his ruin and his lips are a snare to his soul. Well, these wide words in Proverbs reveal there's a deep power a deep, deep power that comes from our words. So this is why we all need to be careful in our speech because they have a, a great impact. And, and one last thing, um, I think everybody in this room is getting a little older each, each day, right? Um, that's just an observation, but sometimes we, can, we, we think people aren't really listening to us sometimes. Well, don't, don't make that assumption. As you get a little older, gradually, your words carry more and more weight and power, and oftentimes we would be really surprised at how much power and weight they, they're carrying. So be, be careful with that. Oh, and one more thing. Uh, most of our communication is nonverbal, so don't limit being slow to speech to just your words. Your expressions can mean a lot too. If your expressions go along with what you're saying, then, then it enhances it. If they contradict, you may send a really mixed message or you might even negate the message entirely. Uh, I looked through a lot of different resources and to, it, it, it's pretty universally agreed that our nonverbal communication, our speech, our nonverbal speech, really has more than 50% of what to, do, what to do with how we speak to each other, how, what we communicate. And then one last little thing. We're, practical thing, we're all, we're all living in a world where we're having remote meetings, and I had the, the privilege of, of talking with an author who's writing a book about a lot of things, but one of the topics was the Zoom meetings. And what they found in the research is that when we're, when we're on Zoom, or, or meets or something, whatever, um, that there's, the reactions aren't coming through in real time, and what that induces in all of us is a state of fear or anxiety. And so that when that does, that actually puts us in states of anxiety. And um, maybe that's why so many of us get so tired after we have Zoom meeting. I've had more than one person say, two, three hours, I'm done. I'm exhausted. So give each other a little grace on Zoom. Um, uh, the last piece in how we speak to each other, how we are interacting with each other was about anger. And just a couple things about anger. Um, first, anger is not a sin. Um, we see God getting angry at times in the Bible. We know God doesn't sin. 
And the verse in James doesn't say to be angry. It says to be slow to anger. Although I would say there are times it's okay to be angry, but, but generally it's better to leave it to God to be the one who gets angry. Uh, secondly, um, anger is a secondary emotion. So what does that mean? If I, uh, let's say I come around the corner here and uh, Alden jumps out and he's, you know, he scares me, you know, and, I, and then I get mad at him, I yell at him. Okay, well, that anger is a secondary emotion. I was really scared, but I was acting angry. And so usually if you're finding yourself being angry, there's something else underneath it. Our anger can be a little bit like a grenade. Um, it'll clear the room, and it'll destroy and move whatever you want to, but there's usually a lot of collateral damage. So we've got to be careful about how we use anger, because even a short burst of anger and then do a, an awful lot of good and cause a lot of harm. And I've even seen relationships for many years just destroyed from a fit of unrepentant anger. So unpacking anger in full is something we could spend a really long time with, especially if you struggle with anger. Um, earlier in my life, I really resorted to anger far too often, and that it wasn't, it wasn't helpful. So if this is something that you're struggling with, if this is an area you need to bring to God, and you're probably going to need some help unpacking it, being accountable with it to somebody, uh, a man, men, woman, a spouse, a group, so you can gain wisdom in handling this in your own life. For me, just knowing anger was actually a secondary emotion or a reaction to something that came before was incredibly helpful. Some of you might be saying, well, okay, give me some rules when I can be angry. Well, I'm not going to do that. I'll just let you give it to God. Um, but there's one thing here. If you are, are angry, one really, really important thing here, I don't want any of you to hear that if you're angry, you should just push it down inside. Don't internalize that anger. Or that same destructive grenade that would have gone off outside is going to go right down inside of you, and you're going to destroy yourself the same way you would have destroyed somebody else. And unpack this. Find, find ways to talk about it. It's okay to say, I'm angry. It's okay to, to talk about it and communicate it, how you're feeling. Some of this is really hard. Um, for, I know for men, this can just be really, really hard. It, it can shut our ability to even think about what's going on. Our reason can shut down. Some of us are going to need help from each other. Some of us are going to need help from professional counselors. Um, usually, you have to wait a little bit to dial down the emotions to have a conversation. But the important thing to do is to talk about it. And this is where really both parties can practice the first part of the verse. Be quick to listen, slow to speak, and slow to become angry. It's going to be a process, one that can take some time and maybe even years, but it's a process worth growing in. Just a couple last words. James said if we can't control our speech, our religion is worthless. And at this point you're thinking, well, this is a tall order and you can't do it. At least that's we, I hope we're all thinking that. Because you're right. That's the first step of becoming a doer of God's word. Because step one of being obedient is being humble. And in reality, all of our religion is worthless. It's only by God's grace we can obey him. Religion is often just our attempt to work our way to God. And the, and the Bible points to the fact that none of us can do it. It is only by God's grace that our lives are changed.